You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to another episode of the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Today with myself, Razan, brother Daniel. Over the next two hours, we're going to be with you talking about two topics. And as always, if you would like to get in contact with us, you can do so via calling us uh, on 0208687. 7878 or you can send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK you can also get in contact with us uh, via Instagram go to Voice of Islam UK and uh, make sure that you do follow us and as well as on Facebook LinkedIn TikTok and you can email us as well so all of these social media platforms are available and Brother Daniel that's the first topic of today's show isn't it? That is indeed the first topic but I am a bit bedazzled by what I read uh, earlier this afternoon today so you know the the international system of units has added uh, two new um, two new units Uh to, uh, to the system of units okay so um so instead of so in addition to for example um uh, tons and uh, and megatons um and grams and, me- and and megagrams we now have two new uh, sets which have been accepted two new sets of uh, of uh, um of weights for example so there's ronograms okay. and there's quetometers so uh, just to give you an idea the earth is now approximately the earth weighs approximately 6 ronograms a ronograms uh, rona ronograms okay so that's r o n n a grams uh-huh. and which is uh, simply a 6 followed by only 27 zeros only oh that's it <laughs> and and jupiter is about 2 quetagrams uh-huh. which is a 2 followed only by 30 zeros 30 zeros so three extra zeros Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you are a genius, you know. Like, uh, it, it comes so naturally to you. I mean, this, uh, all, all yeah, this, I mean, uh, it just I, falls I, in place. I'm doing plus minus these days with my son, so I, I would know about it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Interesting. All right, so... Uh, technology. We have technology all around us, and Brother Daniel just made use of that technology to find out new information. And we live in a technology-dependent society where the temptation to buy the newest smartphones, to have the latest gadgets, unfortunately, is unavoidable. It's here to stay. There's no question about that, and it's developing by the day or even by the second. How often have we seen screens placed in front of whining children's faces in efforts to calm them down? You see it if you go to a restaurant, you will see. I mean, look, um, I'm 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 uh, you I'm, don't have to go I'm, to a restaurant. I'm, I mean, I'm you, you just innocent. need to come to my house and see them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not innocent, okay? I I'm, I'm part of that uh, yeah, that that group. Yeah. Um, where you just want to have uh, a couple of minutes to yourself exactly. and then yeah. eat your dinner in in peace. Um, couple of ways to think sometimes <laughs> as well. Yes, and how frequently do we maybe sometimes ignore teenagers who are hooked on their phones to, and 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 blame everything on on well, the society that, norm? In my household, it's actually the other way around. It's the teenagers who actually ignore us uh-huh. rather than them because they are very busy on their phones and 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 whatnot. So yeah, yeah unfortunately. So that's that's all of the, some of the things that we're going to talk about. While the development of the internet has been revolutionary for learning new things and staying in touch with loved ones, it also comes. with drawbacks that if not handled carefully can be harmful to one's mental health and or divert them from their you know everyday life from their faith from whatever we considered to be uh, right and normal 
couple of years ago. So join us for the upcoming hour in the upcoming hour as we explore the hidden dangers of technology and also social media use, how to avoid them. That being said, I mean, look, when we look at the Holy Quran, one wonderful thing about it is that there's there's no one side to any story, to anything. There's always two sides uh, to it. We're not saying by all means, I want to get this across from the get-go, that social media is bad, it's harmful, period. That's not what it is. But we are only going to look at some of the bad things, some of the negatives of social media and how we can avoid that. How much of an impact is it having on the next generation for the good or for the bad? And how we can make sure that we play a, you know, a role, a, a responsible role in making sure that the next generation knows how to handle and how to navigate the dangers that they are facing. Yes, so I, I guess the only thing that I'd add is that, uh, you know, in this uh, day and age when social media is pervasive, yes, uh, they, uh, there's obviously undeniably very good things that social media has done. It's connected people, it's connected with us, with our friends. But I think there's also a lot of, a lot of bad that social media yeah. has brought in, and uh, we will talk a little bit about that. There is there's obviously people, um, some people committing suicides as, uh, as bad yeah. as that. And, I'm not and we just had a case very recently. Exactly. So that was very public as well. So, you know, yeah, striking the balance is, is uh, as you said. So there truly is more to uh, social media, to posting on Instagram, according to an article that the BBC published a week ago. The piece was about a lady who, like millions of others, uses social media every single day. She told her story after overcoming her addiction. Now, she calculated the average number of hours she spent glued to her screen and decided it was time to quit scrolling through social media after realizing how much time she was wasting. So clearly a numbers woman like you, Daniel. She said that the thought of leaving social media was more daunting than actually leaving. Her words about leaving social media were, it was quite liberating. The article then went on to reveal statistics that show that social media is actually... um uh, declining uh, UK, addition, uh, UK addiction treatment, an organization that runs centers to treat social media addiction, says it has seen a 5% increase in the number of people seeking its help for the problem over the past three years. Society has undoubtedly developed a strong dependency to social media and the internet in general since the pandemic. This according to a counselor at UCAT, which is the UK addiction treatment um, Organization. Yeah. And and there, the, the numbers are growing of people who, who have stopped using social media altogether or have at least reduced their usage as a result of increased awareness of these issues. And the providers are taking notice. Do you still remember Facebook? Yeah, Facebook was a thing. So <laughs> Facebook's owner, Meta, Meta said earlier this year that the platform's daily active user count has dropped for the first time ever. An internal Twitter analysis was that was published last month said that the service's once most active users were now tweeting less. It's a lot of them are actually leaving now uh, as we yeah. speak <laughs> as well. So. And it's not just the tweeters, it's the people who are, you know, making sure that the tweets do go out. Exactly. So over the past three years, the number of people seeking assistance from UK Addiction Treatment, a company that operates centers, as you just mentioned, to treat social media addiction, has increased by 5%. From the data shared, it is evident that people are becoming aware of the negative impact of social media and are recently and are actively making a change. You see, what, what she said, that woman, um, the article written by the BBC, 
It's actually quite liberating. Mm. You know, just take the phone, for example. It is. How many times have we, or how many times do we actually make sure that we have the keys and, and the phone? I mean, it's mm. just, it's not even cars or cash anymore. It's not, not even your wallet. It's just the mm. phone and your keys. And last week it happened with me that I, I, I left um, to go play badminton and I forgot my phone. Right, and I think five minutes. So you have you you always contemplate: should I go back or should I not? I mean, where is the point of no return? And it wasn't that far. I mean, it was like five six minutes away from home, but I could have gone back easily, no no problems whatsoever. But then I thought about, I'm like, I don't really need it. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's let's a, let's see it's what happens. A, it's a compulsive disorder exactly. that we all have so, a, a, yeah. instead of a, a real need. So let's see what happens. Hmm. And I came back, and and the world was still spinning. Exactly. Nothing happened. Hmm. And it was quite liberating. I mean, my phone didn't explode. Yeah. It wasn't like 20,000 messages or phone calls missed. It's just... No, I tell you, uh, you know, I, so I, um, a few years ago, I did this, um, um, uh, this is this 10-day meditation at the end of Ramadan. Okay, uh, yes. uh, Called Ethikaf. Uh, so this is, uh, for those who don't know, you know, a period of 10 days where you just um, stay in the mosque, you live and um, uh, you live inside the mosque and you, you're not supposed to use uh, any gadgets and you, you're just supposed to be disconnected from the world and, and meditate and, yeah. pray, and, and pray, really. So I did that and, and uh, yeah, it, it, so, you know, among so many other things, uh, it was a great opportunity to do um, a digital detox. Yeah. And uh, trust me, yeah, you're absolutely right. When I came out after 10 days, nothing, the world was still going around, <laughs> everything was happening, every, everybody was normal, and yeah. uh, nothing had stopped. It's true. I, mean, I think just to come to that realization, it's it's a it's a phobia for some people if they have if they don't have that phone. I mean, yes, it's not just social media. We rely for it, uh, navigation and news and emails and whatnot. It's not just Twitter, Instagram, and 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 Facebook. If people still are using it, but there's so many things to attach to it. But that digital detox, I think I've, I've been hearing that word more and more lately where it's definitely necessary. So it's not just a, it's social media and the negative harms of that. It's also that anxiety that people have. It is anxiety, that absolutely. This, absolutely. I mean, what if I, you know, this formal, uh, the fear of missing out, uh, that, you know, what, what have I missed out? So this, the first thing you touch when you, when, you, hmm. <laughs> when you get out of the bed in the morning is yeah. your phone. Now, <laughs> our dear brother Kiyom has his message a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Uh, not weeks Why ago, is think, he not here? Uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> Question to you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he said that he was without cars, car, cars, cards, cash, and keys. Okay. And he's just going back to normal now. Right. And he said it was... Good what, thing he does. He still has a DAP. It was a very... <laughs> <laughs> it was a liberating experience. Yeah, so he's sharing that opinion with us. Jazakallah yeah. to you, Brother Kim. Now, earlier on, we spoke to one of our guests uh, from, I believe he was in Montreal. In, in in Australia at that time, Dr. Ofer Terrell. And it was a very interesting conversation. He's a professor of information systems management within the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. We spoke to him talking about uh, social media addiction. We're talking about what the future ho- holds or is going to hold. And also specifically when it comes to the teenagers and if they are responsible Yes or no. Now, the question that we're asking you on uh, Instagram as well, that social media, do you have to post it 
to prove it if you go to Voice of Sam UK on Instagram do leave us do leave us a comment and we'll make sure to include it into today's program so that is the interview that we had with Dr. Ofer Terrell let's see what he had to say I'm joined here today by Professor Ofer Terrell he's a professor of information systems management within the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne he's also a scholar in residence at the Decision Neuroscience Program at the University of Southern California Professor Terrell has published over 160 journal papers in leading journals, and he has been recognized in the top 2% of researchers worldwide in a study conducted by Stanford University. With that, Professor Terrell, thank you very much for joining us here on the Draft Time Show, and welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. Now, your work and synthesis of the literature touch upon various types of technological and internet addiction, and of course, their consequences. If I can ask you to start off with if you can please briefly summarize some of such addictions and their consequences from your empirical studies. Right. So I think, first of all, we should be careful about the use of the term addiction. It's a controversial term, and not everybody agrees that the issue of excessive use of technology mounts to an addiction. But obviously, everybody could see it. I mean, you just look around you and, and you see people that are glued to their screen to the point where it really infringes upon their normal functioning. And where people get to this point, it becomes what we call excessive use of technology. This is the point where technology use is no longer fully beneficial. It actually introduces some arms to uh, individuals. And uh, there are certain, it doesn't happen with all technologies. Of course, you are unlikely to become addicted to Microsoft Word or uh, Microsoft Excel, but it has to do with technologies that are very enjoyable and technologies of which we repeatedly or that we repeatedly use. And these technologies train our brain to want more dopamine, more enjoyment, want to use them more. And basically, this is what the technology providers or the service providers want us to do. They are competing for our attention in this attention economy. And therefore, uh, they design these systems to be very engaging. Now, most of us are good at self-control. And we know at some point that the engagement with, you know, watching the 20th TikTok video may be a bit too much. So we stop doing that. But some of us don't have these strong control mechanisms, and therefore we keep on engaging with these uh, videos or whatever we're doing, and uh, to the point where we really stop studying if we're at school, neglecting work, neglecting family life, and neglecting uh, many other important aspects of life like exercising, social interaction, and so on. And at this point, we get to the addiction stage. So engagement translates eventually, for some people, into uh, addiction. And example technologies are social media and video games. These are are the prime examples of technologies to which people can become addicted. Um, Again, uh, this is maybe a little bit of uh, terminology, but I I personally don't believe that people become addicted to the technology per se, because the technology is just deliver the rewards to the person. Uh, People are addicted to the use of different technologies. And I think it's important to make this distinction. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that. So um, you, in your study, you spoke about technology family conflict. Uh, If I can ask you for the benefit of our listeners and viewers, 
what exactly is that? So one aspect that technology can uh, create, or one issue that technology use can create is conflict uh, with one's family or the demand, the family demands that one has. And in this particular study, we looked at technology that people bring from work to the home environment. So it could be smartphones, uh, any other machine that would allow you to check your email and connect to work and so on. And basically, we have two worlds. On the one side, we have uh, the work domain. And on the other side, we have the family domain. And traditionally, they have been separated. So back in the days, 20 years ago, you would finish work at five, and then you are totally disconnected from what's going on at work. But now we are bringing work into the home space. And people have only you know a couple of hours with their families. And sometimes this time is chewed up by demands that are coming from the work environment. And this is the conflict that I'm talking about, where work technologies interfere with the family demands that someone has. So then <clears throat> what what do we do? I mean, um, we want to work, uh, we want to excel in our jobs. And that means sometimes, you know, when you, when you spoke about 20 years ago, back in the days, how things were that you, you, you would put in extra hours, you would stay longer in the office, but now you can take the office home. And especially now, after the pandemic, the home became the office. So how do you reduce that usage that, that leads to that work overload, which then ultimately leads to friction within family homes? So I think it's easy to put the responsibility on individuals, but actually it's a shared responsibility of individuals and organizations or supervisors. So individuals need to be aware of this tension and because it's easy to get carried away and uh, work 24 hours because your home is now your work office in many cases. But a little bit of awareness and self-control could help people overcome that. Um, also from the uh, supervisor side, there needs to be awareness that not everything needs to be sent as an email or request at 8 p.m., um, you know, things could wait in some cases till till the morning. So I think it's sort of a joint responsibility. And fortunately, nowadays, we also have technological tools that can help us control uh, engagement with certain technologies. We can shut down or put timers on, you know, certain apps that we're not going to get notifications after 5 or 6 p.m. Now, of course, this depends on the type of job. So if you're I know the president of the United States, of course, you don't want to shut notifications, but most of us are not in this position. Most of us will be just fine if, you know, we get, we see the notifications first thing in the morning when we open the email and we don't have to do it during uh, family time. So I think a little bit of awareness uh, on both sides, supervisors, organizations, and individuals could help with this regard. Wonderful. Now, Professor Al, I want to ask you about, so there's certain generations that might be able to to deal with it. There are certain uh, age groups or people that can control that. They know, okay, this is um, my uh, technology free time or screen free time. But then if you look at the next generation, how do you think that these issues of internet addiction, technology addiction, how are they being addressed by schools, by parents and governments? Because this technology, whatever we have at the moment, is here to stay. And it's only going to improve and, you know, 
20 years ago, we could not have imagined that we would be satisfied or we would just just be looking for 20 second videos um, as we are today. Yes. Yeah, so uh, technologies, no matter what we do, if Facebook disappears, there will be another social media. If TikTok disappears, there will be another one. There is always going to be something or some someone out there that is going to com- compete for our attention. And I think this generation surprisingly uh, developed, I'm talking about the young generation, developed pretty good awareness of these issues. And it reminds me of the very first days where people realized that fatty foods or sugary foods are not good for them. If you think 100 years ago, we all consumed whatever food we could get because there was shortage of food. So we couldn't care if it's fatty, sugary. I mean, the more sugar, the better, right? Back 100 years ago. Um, but over time, we developed an understanding that and this is a cross-generational understanding, right? From childhood, kids understand nowadays that maybe it's better for them to eat something healthier. Um, so we developed this understanding. We instilled it. We have... Uh, some intervention from the government, for example, regulations about uh, calories that they have to post on, you know, uh, the, the calor- caloric values of uh, different food items. Uh, for example, in California, restaurants have to post the, the on the menus the calories of each and every item. So um, there are these things together, government intervention together with education and self-control brought us to this point where most of us are aware of uh, what is healthy and what is unhealthy in terms of food consumption. It doesn't mean that we do not consume, uh, we stopped consuming unhealthy foods. It just means that we are more aware of it and we have better control over it. And I think this, the younger generation actually got to this point where they have this understanding that uh, social media use may be excessive and they try to take control over it and they try to limit and they use screen time and they use all sorts of techniques to uh, to limit their use. So I'm, I'm talking, for example, with university students and many of them would just delete social media for exam periods. So they, they have no intention to fully quit social media, but they just know that this, this is such a distractor during the period where they need to study. So they try to avoid it by deleting it. Or when they study, they put their uh, smartphone in, an, in another room such that they don't have the temptation to check all the notifications while they're studying. So uh, surprisingly, this generation is doing, pre- the young generation is doing pretty well. And uh, for us who didn't grow up with, with social media, we, we just learned to cope with it uh, also the same way. Of course, there are certain individuals who do not always have strong self-control, and these are the individuals who will find it difficult to uh, to control their social media use or video game use, and these are the ones who may need additional help. But uh, for most of in younger individuals, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about their ability to more carefully consume social media. That's good to hear. Um so um, one more question that I have is something based on what we have seen here in the UK. There are certainly some teenagers that are so impacted and influenced by what they see on social media or what they're shown on social media that it sometimes leads to um, very tragic incidents. There was recently a case here in the UK where a young girl committed suicide based on the content that she saw on one of the social media platforms. Do you think that schools... Uh, social media companies are doing enough to safeguard 
you know, students, uh, we're not talking about university students, we're talking about, you know, younger teenage students yeah. from, from the dangers, from the harms of the internet. That being said, I mean, we're not saying that there's only dangers, of course, there's so many benefits mm-hmm. that we have, but unfortunately it's these things that we pick up, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and I, I'm in total agreement with you. I think uh, we're not doing enough, uh, all societies, not just in the UK, not doing enough to protect ch- children and young adults from the risks of social media. Like you, I believe that there are many benefits, but I also agree that we just, uh, you know, sweep under the rug uh, the, the negative aspects and want to ignore them because for the most of us, it's really a harmful type of engagement or pastime uh, using social media. So uh, it's not just schools. I think it's also parents, but... Uh, Maybe, again, I don't know, maybe 20 years from now, we will be looking back and we, we will ask ourselves, how come we gave these technologies to our kids to the same extent that, you know, parents now ask themselves, how did they give their, you know, ask, let their children smoke or mm-hmm. uh, do things like that 20, yeah. 30 years ago where it was more acceptable. Um, so um, I think schools, especially in school environment, when you think about it, there is really no reason to have any access to smartphones at schools. So kids could use the school phone uh, if there is an emergency. Uh, Nothing good could come out of 400 kids walking around with smartphones, recording each other, pranking each other, and exchanging uh, videos. So no matter how you slice or dice it, really there is no benefit to doing that at school environment. So I think a good starting point would be uh, banning smartphones at school. And in yeah. fact, actually, there was a an, uh, a piece here on Australian TV that talked about a UK school that does that. And uh, I'm wondering why other schools are not doing that. Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, Professor Rell, lastly, I want to ask you about the future. Where do you think we are headed when it comes to technology? What does the future hold? What are some of the things that we as parents, we as individuals, we as employers, employees, maybe should be aware of um, when it comes to proper use, when it comes to responsible use of uh, technology in general. So I, I think, I mean, initially when I started working on this dark side of technology or all the negative aspects, I was pretty pessimistic about the, the trends in, in technology and technology use. But over time, I learned to become much more optimistic because humans are good at developing technologies and technologies always surprise us with negative aspects. So when, you know, who thought about car crashes when people invented cars and started creating faster and faster cars? Um, So there is always new issues that emerge after we develop a technology that initially was for the benefit of society. But humanity over over and over again managed to overcome uh, the challenges through education, self-control, being creative, developing additional tools that would help us uh, control uh, our environment. So uh, altogether, I think that the future is going to be bright. Yes, we are going to see new technologies that may seem threatening. Think about artificial intelligence, for example and replacing uh, employees or displacing employees, uh, replacing humans in many functions. Uh, You could think about 
the more invasive types of social media and fake news on social media that are generated by AI and sophisticated algorithms. So yes, there is a long list of threats out there, but at the same time, uh, humans are unique in that they're very creative. They have self-control abilities and they learn over time to overcome these, these obstacles. Oh, you're muted. Sorry. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Technology. Uh, Professor Trello, thank you very much for, for joining us here on the Draft Time Show. It was an absolute pleasure to, to have you on and uh, it was great to talk to you. And thank you so much for, for, for joining us today. Happy to support you guys and looking forward to doing it again soon. Inshallah. All right. That was it. Thank you so much um, for, for joining us today. I mean, <clears throat> I remember when, when we went to school on, on that uh, the take, take work to home. I think one thing that came across here as well, that bullying, for example, is also one of those things that before it was just when you came home from school, that was it, the end of it. And then the next day, you, maybe you would encounter your bully again. But now when you say that 400 kids with smartphones pranking each other, it's not just all good uh, fun uh, and negative things as well which is quite think about it really nothing what's what's the benefit of a kid it's a safe environment right so what's the benefit of having a smartphone in this environment i remember when they when the smartphones came out we were apps there was no way that you could take your phone to 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 class even if you did manage to sneak it in and it went off or somebody called you or you got a message and it made a beep that phone was gone for a week. <laughs> you yeah. would see it at the end of the week. Okay, so that was uh, Professor Ofer um, that we spoke to earlier on, and you also listened to some of the unedited bits after <laughs> we, we were officially done with the uh, interview. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation, and as he mentioned, it uh, has an impact on on the on the family dynamics. It has an impact on how the relationship between children and parents is affected by that. And that's exactly what we were trying to um, get across or what we're trying to get across in in this show, in this part of the program. If you have anything to say, then by all means, do give us a call 0208-687-7878. In uh, the closing address at this year's uh, uh, annual get-together of the um, which is the women's auxiliary organization of the Ahmadi Muslim community. His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Masood Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand. He said that it is common knowledge that these social media platforms are constructed in a way that makes them addictive, and just like any addiction, the results are often horrific. And as Muslims, we're taught that any form of addiction is forbidden as it takes us away from our purpose as human beings, which is to worship our creator, which is to help each other. So hukukullah, the rights that we owe to God and hukukulibad, which are the rights that we owe to each other. And addiction, you know, if you go down that road, it, it can result in committing shirk, which is prohibited in Islam, which is associating partners with God Almighty. Putting anyone or anything on the same level or above as God Almighty should be, that is called and considered and classified as shirk. And that's what we have at the moment. Hours and hours and hours spent on these platforms. Aimlessly. A- aimlessly. Aimlessly. It's, you know, one video to the next if you're on YouTube. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and yeah, they are, it can be addictive because uh, a lot of that, it, you know, they have predictive softwares and, 
uh, they use all sorts of analytics and um, and uh, you know you just hooked on and before you know it uh, you know you've already spent two three hours uh, actually doing nothing yeah. so it's uh, it, you know unless you're very careful you know at the point that we we're trying to make earlier unless you're very careful it um, you can end up wasting a lot of time and you can um, uh, end up uh, and not gaining a lot from spending time on social media so yeah it, uh, you know it's um uh, it has its uses it it is a useful uh, medium social media in general but you've got to be careful as to how you're using it and when you're using it and, and especially kids and teenagers and how um how they are consuming um um uh, the the software on um on their phones and on their tablets and whatnot so uh, you know and and it's muslims we 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 need to avoid anything that um uh, leads us to either waste time or uh, be unproductive that's you know a, a life of uh, of uh, a muslim is the life or it, it should be a productive life should be a life s- spent um doing yeah. the two things you describe which is uh, you know either worshiping god or helping um creation out there helping people out there and there's so much help that people need these days uh so i'd rather do that than spend uh you know, three hours watching some videos, a bunch of videos on YouTube. And, and it is as <laughs> these videos, they describe exactly how it is. You look on, uh, you start, you go to bed and you just watch one video. What is it? 9 p.m. And just it feels like it's like three videos, but it's all of a sudden it's like 3 a.m. in the morning. And exactly. That, that's I, how I, time flies. Absolutely. Time flies and um, and, and, and aimlessly. I mean, you you don't <laughs> achieve anything and, and you feel bad about it as well. Yeah. I mean, you feel guilty. I mean, that's the, that's the worst part of it. There's you no end. Guilt at the end of the day. simply no end to that. <laughs> now, the in- internet was initially a source for searching information. We, I'm not sure if you remember, but it was a huge help back in the days when it actually came to mainstream. But of course it has evolved. It uh, now is a platform for global connecti- connectivity, especially with you know, the advent of social media. Online material is accessible to everybody, including children who perhaps can navigate phones better than us. Now, while our tech-savvy younger generation may be proficient in the use of modern technology, they are nonetheless vulnerable to the risks of the Internet. Uh, And there are many to that. We are going to get to some of those in just a little bit. But before that, let's speak to our next guest for today, who has worked with children and adults who have chronic health conditions. Uh, She has also worked in the private sector with patients, uh, with inpatients from various mental health backgrounds. Uh, Mariam Mirza is with us on the line. Good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show, Mariam. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, surveys show that 90% of teens aged 13 to 17 have used social media. Why do you think that so many young people heavily rely, heavily live, basically, on social media? Well, uh, first of all, I think many would class it as fun, followed by using it as your downtime, or also known as me time. It is so easily accessible nowadays for different streams such as your iPads, your phones, laptops, and even watches. Especially with the population in question, they want to keep up to date with all the trends and be able to be part of conversations that may happen during lunch um, hours or after school. So it's having a sense of belongingness. We human beings, we are very much social animals, and most of the time we want the companionship of others to succeed in life. Whether positive or negative, 
those relationships that we form have a massive impact on our mental health and happiness then. Right. So um, do you think social media can have a negative impact on, on, on a person's health, both physical and mental? Um, unfortunately, I think the answer would be a yes. I will go into one specific example here. Significant amounts of research indicate a correlational link between low self-esteem and body image with the use of social media. So if we take a look at the different platforms available, such as let's talk about Instagram, TikTok or Snapchat, it's very common that one is very much overexposed to idealized body types that they see by influencers posting something. And this could then lead to being unhappy with one's own physical appearance. Therefore, extreme dieting, obsessive exercising, and disordered eating patterns could be formed. Now, also, like you mentioned, addiction, and I think I'm not going to touch on that because you have mentioned it quite a bit already at this point, um, addictions could be formed, whether that is uh, physical addictions or mental addictions as well. Right. So so what can we do as parents? I mean, uh especially with teenagers, you know, if you've got a 17 or a 19-year-old, uh, they will consume social media. So what can one do as, as a parent? Of course, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a parent, it's very important that we look out for those signs. Uh, it's easier said than it's really done. And those signs I'm referring to could also be easily hidden by someone who's affected by social media. Uh, one important thing to remember is communication. Make sure you talk about topics like this one at home with your children. Especially in today's world we live in, transparency is key in communication with children and young adults. Ask them what their thoughts are about this topic. Now, I know that everyone probably has heard that parents should monitor their children's social media or their social media account, what content they follow, what they're liking. Again, this is really not as easy and... Um, but there are great ways of monitoring children's safety online. So I would recommend to do your own research and utilize what would work best for you and your family in your home environment. Because what, what, what might work best for your neighbor might not be ideal for sure. your, your children. Right. Um, but limit the time that you spend online and unfollow accounts that are not suitable for your children. And if your first language is not English, ask a friend, ask someone in your child's school, ask in your community, or if you have older children, ask them to help you find out how you can implement those things in your life. Absolutely. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Maria Mirza, thank you very much for joining us. This is all we have time for today, fortunately. Okay. Lovely speaking exactly. to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. So that was Mrs. Maria Mirza, who has worked with children and adults with chronic health problems. Um, in a report by Ofcom this year, it was found that children were more likely to encounter online bullying as opposed to face-to-face bullying, as 84% yeah. of 8 to 17-year-olds said that they had been bullied online. Internet users with malicious intent have the choice to hide their identities. Their anonymity eliminates the, the worry of repercussions and, and therefore giving them a free pass, really. So, And the other important thing that we must all remember is that in these days, having a digital footprint can actually become a curse since anything you post online stays online permanently. Mm-hmm. 
And there are occasions when the internet is then used to, you know, expose others in inverted commas, making their faults public to strangers. To strangers, and we've, you know, there's uh, there's all sorts of blackmail and 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 whatnot that we keep on hearing about um, in the media. One very interesting thing that I learned, I think, a uh, couple of years ago or months ago, when we spoke about this topic and how to stay safe online. One of the one of the guests that we had on was talking about how you give uh, information, free information to people who are out there to harm you. What I mean by that is if you go on holidays and you're posting pictures, oh, I'm here right now, I'm there right now, which means that you're not at home. Yeah. So your home is yeah, is, is empty. Yeah. Is empty. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, it's ready to be mm-hmm. <laughs> to be attacked. It's ready to be um you know misused by people who who are out there to to harm people in in some way so m- that's something that we never think about exactly. i mean when we are going Absolutely. somewhere you want to have it on your whatsapp status Correct. on your instagram or your timeline whatever it is um but you never think about but it but you're also inviting trouble in that respect exactly and so. there are all sorts of people who think in all sorts of different ways uh, not unfortunately a lot of people think like us which yeah. is which, yeah. is, <laughs> which, which <laughs> is only good for other people so on yeah uh, that is uh, another sad uh, aspect yeah. of, of the soul. The question we're asking you on our Instagram, so yeah, for this you're going to have to go on Instagram. How often do you post on social media? Is it more than once a week, about once a week, once every few days, or less than once a week? Right now, the less than once a week option is clearly No, winning. I tell you what, call us at 0208687 Don't go on social media. <laughs> <laughs> call us. <laughs> that social media team is not going to be happy today. <laughs> but yeah, either way, just do get in contact with us. We're, we'd love to have you on and you know, hear what you have to say about this. In our day, having a digital footprint can be a curse since once anything is posted, you said online, it stays there. You can delete your account. You can uh, disable your account. But once you decide to go back, you know, let me just see what or so sometimes it's you have to have it because that's the only way to get in contact with somebody. Certain mm. organizations, they will only be on social media. If you want to get in contact, they won't have a phone number. They won't have an email address. It's just DMs or, or, or contacts through uh, social media. So Islam, for example, asserts that a person's flaws should be kept private between him and God and should not be revealed to the public. Mm. While social media is merciless, Allah is al-ghafoor, the one who forgives. So using the internet in this manner goes against the principles of Islam. As Muslims, you have a huge responsibility. Do it carefully, do it wisely. Um, and it's very easy to offend someone. Look, we we how many times have people had miscommunication on social media? Just because you don't see the emotions of the other person. Even smileys or emojis don't convey that emotional feeling that you have or response that you have to the other person. And and then add to that the insensitivity uh, that people, you know, people think that they have a license to be rude on social media and and they, they can say anything and anything goes. Whereas you know, if you if you responded to somebody or or saying something uh, around a post, you're actually talking to another human being, yeah. and and you just forget that because you are supposed to be behind the phone as opposed to in front of the other person, yeah. but you're still talking to the other person. That, that that's that's what it is. But we, I, I think. Do you think it's it's like a it's like an age thing? What do you mean? It it, it relates to what age you're in or. 
I mean, these keyboard warriors that we, t- we we talk about, that bullying behavior that you have online as well, is that is that an age thing or is that across the, the board? Bully, I think the bullying behavior is across the board. I mean, you yeah. look at the, the complaints that many footballers have actually made yeah, about, yeah, about yeah, racism yeah, yeah. and whatnot and, 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 and so many others, uh, for example, in the media in general. Yeah. So I don't think it's an age thing. It's, it's, uh, it's just a bad human being thing hmm. um, uh, for you to do something like that. And, and, and that, I think, is what is leading to all these mental health problems and, um, um, and uh, you know, this, this whole uh, gratification, uh, instant gratification yeah. syndrome. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Now, we're also going to look at the mental health side, although we have covered this and we've spoken about this with some of our guests and throughout the, the program as well. Social media influences such as those who are on Instagram, often they post pictures that are sneakily altered, which perpetuates unrealistic beauty standards. We know, I think, if you come if you at a certain age, at a certain point, if you have been using social media and if you are on that quite regularly, you know the ins and outs of that, you will know that these beauty standards are not what you see in real life. And in order for them to get these likes, in order for them to get these clicks, they have to put on a show. They have to present it in a way that people don't just scroll and go to the next one. But children and early teens who feel they must conform to the ideal beauty standard in order to look good enough, they suffer from lowered self-esteem as a result of this. Just on this, on my way here, not just here, but every day you see it, that it's teenagers, literally, I can't even tell the tapes, I mean, 13, 14, maybe 15, where they have the whole kit. You you know what I mean by the kit, mm. the, the round light, the spotlight, whatever <laughs> that is. You have the stand, you have the tripod, yeah, 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 and yeah. they're in a park, and and it's just one take after the other. Exactly. Until and unless you get that perfect, uh, absolutely. The, uh, yeah. Shot. N- not to mention the uh, the hundred uh, other filters that they'll have yeah, on, yeah, on well, their phones. Filters as well. Yeah, that's that's, that's another, another story. <laughs> and yeah. that is something I think. Look. If you are influential, if you are an influencer, yeah. why why not influence in a positive way? That's the question I think we've asked well, so many they, times. They, they'll debate with you that they're being positive. So, so they they they. Would I never tell you what I can open any any platform right now, apart mm. from Twitter, maybe. It's all about money. It it's is. all about power. It's all mm. about beauty. It's all about gyms. That's mm. that's. That's the only thing there is out there. 90%, okay, 10%. And you cannot tell me that anybody who is suffering from any mental health issue, anybody who is obese, anybody who does not have a perfect skin, that that is impacting them in a positive way. But Imam Raza, that's what the, that's the, the, uh, the model. Uh, You know, it's all about e-commerce. Yeah. That is the, that is how you monetize the value of these apps, whether yeah. it's Facebook or um, or Instagram or anything else, yeah. that is uh, it's it's all about money. It's that's all about it. how you monetize your platform, and that's what is you know blurring the line between what is reality and what is what is not reality, what is artificial and what is real. In the children's and parents' media use attitudes. Uh, reports by Ofcom this year was found that the majority of 12 to 17 year olds were confident they could differentiate between what is real and what is fake online. However, only 11% answered correctly in an interactive survey. 11%. 
I mean, based on this, I, I, I would be, I, I would go so far as to argue that there are more harmful effects yeah. than 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 positives of social media, especially if you if you if you have social media account at an early age, in early teens, for example, mm-hmm. and you you certainly don't miss much. So I I obviously I there was no social media when I was growing up when I was a teenager. Um, I know you're a lot younger than me, <laughs> but uh, um, probably not in, in when, I when you were a teenager. I didn't say it. You, you didn't say it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Um, yeah, so I I don't think I missed anything. Yeah, if if anything, I think I had a very healthy. Um, but you see, this how going out playing I'm, in the streets. I'm 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 fully on board with you. I mm. fully agree with you. I mean, yeah. we had these these. Uh, Sounds like a butt coming somewhere. N- <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a butt. <laughs> but but I'm I'm thinking from the perspective of someone today. Mm. I mean, you you have this uh, the 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 age gap and this generation gap coming into into this d- discussion conversation as well. That somebody who is in his teenage years will say, "Well, that's not my fault that you didn't have it. If you had it at that time, I'm sure you would have used it." But how do you? Is is it's a generational thing? I mean, we we were of that same opinion of the generation above us. When we were young, oh, you don't know, we know this and that. But when you go through life and you get to a certain stage, you will realize, you know what, they were right, isn't it? Mm. But how do you get that message across to them now at this point? Because let's say 60% of them or 70 or 80, hopefully 90% of them, all good and fine, nothing happens, God willing. But there's 10% that go astray. We don't know. I think... uh the only way is for you to show both sides yeah. to your children, yeah. to tell them, to uprise them that listen, there. Uh, and control is not a way, isn't it? No, not at all. Education is the way. Yeah, you've got to educate them. You've got to make them wiser. You've yeah. got to tell them that listen, you know, this it has some advantages, but but just read that story. Yeah, read that person who's who's uh, uh, who's just committed suicide. Um, uh, watch this. I mean, there is a lot of uh, um, good evidence. Uh, you know, quantitative evidence uh, mm. that has been accumulated in various surveys about the, the harmful effects of social media. So a lot of research has been conducted. So I mean, you've got to at the end of the end of the day, put both sides in front of um, your children and 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 tell them, make them wiser. And I think that a lot of that we're very lucky in the the Muslim community mm. actually because we have the leadership who actually gives us this guidance decades in advance. Yeah. And you know, can can I just confess on this platform that you know when Facebook was launched and His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmed may Allah be his helper he it was the best thing in the world at, uh, at that time everybody was talking about Facebook and it was supposed to be the best gift ever to humanity because it was supposed to be connecting people connecting old friends and and whatnot. and yet he comes on uh, on TV and he says listen be careful hmm. this this has some some very uh, some some advantages, but a whole host of disadvantages. Yeah, and and can I just confess on on radio that I, you know I was I I was listening to that, and I, I said really what could the disadvantages be, and you know we are what in in twenty twenty two now what only a, uh, less than fifteen years on, hmm. and the whole world is talking about the disadvantages. Yeah, yeah. So I think we, it's about uh, it's about 
it's about making people wiser. It's about educating people. It's about educating your children. And that's not something that, unfortunately, a lot of other people, when I say other people, um, people outside the MDM Muslim community, uh, unfortunately, have. Because whatever um, mentor you have is on social media. Yeah. So they would actually promote social media, if anything, because that's because everybody, as you said, is making money from it. That's it. And at that point, I mean, we, parents were concerned about how do you get that message across? Because, as you said, Facebook was ruling the world. Mm-hmm. How do you get that message across? And it comes down to this to the same point that you mentioned before: educate yourself on both sides and be. Be a parent. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, this is something that I've heard on on the weekend as well when we went up north to different parts of the country. I mean, Manchester, Bradford, Huddersfield, those places where you have this disconnect between parents and children based on the lack of commonalities. Exactly. It's always this, don't do this, don't do that, stop this, stop that, don't go on social media. But we should be aware of why we shouldn't go on social media. And that's exactly what His Holiness, for example, when, when it came to the Facebook issue, he he was informed. He took uh, advice from the people around him, found out what it was. And that's the same thing with everything that he talks about. Yeah. And then make an informed decision about how to proceed from then on. And he spoke about fake accounts on Facebook. He mm-hmm. spoke about how young people are lured into doing wrong things, especially girls, by um, you know sharing pictures mm-hmm. or sharing personal information, which then ultimately is used, can be used against them. And we've had so many cases online as well. I mean, has been used. Yeah, it has been used exactly, mm-hmm. and that's that's what it comes down to. When you have this network, when you have this experience, when you have uh, this this knowledge of these things from someone who has research, who has studied, who has gone through it, why would you not listen to that? Mm-hmm. But it's just again for us, for this generation, any generation who is talking to these teenagers about not using. It's how you get the message across. How do you connect with them on that level? And what alternatives do you offer? Absolutely. It's, it is, <clears throat> at the end of the day, about that connection, having that connection with your children so that you, you connect at their level, yeah. having that those conversations at the dinner table, um, having uh, that, uh, yeah, connection is the right word, having that connection so you are actually spending time with them in another way so that they, they actually don't need to go on social media yeah. and... Uh, um, you know, I'd, I'd rather go on a holiday with my kids than, you know, them spending time on Instagram and whatnot. And le- so why why don't you just try it? I mean, like Dr. Professor Ofer mentioned in his interview that you have students in, in university who will delete their social media completely altogether during that exam period so they can concentrate on the things that matter. We can try it. Let's do the 10 days of digital detox. Mm. There's nothing to lose. I'm sure the world will keep on spinning. Here are the 5 o'clock news, and then we'll be back after that. Stay with us. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and uh, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. We are going to move on to the second topic for today. Brother Daniel, what's up in the second half of the program? So the second half is about water turnout, water apathy. So the falling levels of water turnout and trust in government across Western democracies have raised concerns about political disengagement. 
Voting is crucial to the health of democracy. In 2019, United Kingdom general election voter turnout was 67.3% of eligible voters. It is uh, it was a 1.5% drop compared with the previous general election of 2017. Between 1922 and 1997, however, voter turnout uh, never fell below 70%. But in 2001, it dropped just uh, dropped to just 59.4%. And since that low voter turnout has gradually recovered and reached about 72% um, uh, when the Brexit referendum took place, um, but it is generally still quite low. And I think a lot of that has got to do with uh, with how we perceive politicians, how mm. we perceive politics, how the government is run the, uh, these days. And uh, and also, uh, you know, um, the instability uh, in, in the government here in the UK. I mean, we've had, um, what, uh, three elections in the last five years? And, and we don't know, uh, including the... Did we? Well, uh, three... three Including the Brexit. Oh, okay. Yeah. That one. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, from the sounds of it, you never know when the next one is. So. <laughs> it's a guessing game, though, isn't it? It is a guessing game. Yeah, There's no regularity to it. Well, there's supposed to be regularity. Yeah, I mean, it's supposed yeah. to be five years. But, uh, you know, there's so, so much instability in the world around us. There's so much instability in politics. There's so much. We've seen the leadership uh, contest race. I mean, we've, we've had what? Uh, I, I remember that uh, that meme. You know what? Uh, two prime ministers and, uh, uh, and 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 a queen and a king and uh, and there was you know it with the letters up, with yeah exactly. <laughs> and my son is only seven days old. So <laughs> okay, so he's he's already seen uh, so much. So yeah. it is uh, it, you know it's. Um, uh, so one can almost understand where the water apathy is actually uh, coming from. Hmm. What? How much of that? I mean, when we, when you talk about it has to do with the the politicians, it has to do with the people at the top. That people are just not turning up to vote because some of them might not even be thinking that it has any impact of on whether they vote or not. How how much of that do you think has to do with the people itself? Is it is it like a generational thing that the next generation is just not so much maybe interested in politics? I I don't I I think no I don't think it's that uh, at all I mm-hmm. think it's the fact that people have lost trust in leaders in in leadership in general yeah and people don't um, uh, we don't trust our leaders we don't trust uh, the people um, uh, who are supposed to who are there actually to make our lives better will uh, whether they will actually do anything to yeah. make our lives better. Uh, so we don't trust them to do to to make the right decisions. We don't, you know, because of the instability, we don't know if anybody's going to be around for more than six months. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I think it is more the fact that people think that it's um, uh, can I? Uh, it's just people uh, losing trust in government. Yeah, yeah. And. That should not be the case. In the Holy Quran, in chapter 4, verse 59, God Almighty states that, Verily, Allah commands you to make over the trusts to those entitled to them, and that when you judge between men, you judge with justice. And surely, excellent is that with which Allah admonishes you. Allah is all-hearing, all-seeing. If we have this lack of trust and this lack of uh, confidence in the political elite, well, it's not just the people who are voting for them. It is the performance and the 
delivery of uh, the political elite or the leaders that is clearly lacking. His Holiness has Mizam Sud Ahmed clearly when he speaks to different parliaments and I mean he he's not afraid of anything or anyone but God. Mm. The Capitol Hill, for example, was a very, very good example where he yeah. stated that you have a responsibility, you have a role to play, not just within your local national politics, but also internationally. But that can only be done if you fulfill the obligation and the rights and, and the responsibility given to you by justice, by doing justice, by being fair, by upholding the values that this society stands for. And that's what leadership is about, isn't yeah. it? But if you're worried about the next general election, if you're worried about the next council elections, if you're worried about the next election in, in two months' time or in six months' time, uh, you know, there is no longevity. Yeah. There is, how can you plan for uh, for anything um, for anything beyond six months or, or, or a year? And um, and unfortunately, that is is the bane of uh, of the, of the modern democratic system. We can we can criticize um, um, Asian some of Asian societies, especially China, yeah. all we want. Yeah. But uh, you know, th- there is stability. There is stability of leadership. There is stability of planning. Uh, um, a lot of Chinese uh, Xi Jinping has a plan for 2050. Hmm. How many of, of our plans uh, are, you know, go, go as far as 2050? 2025 would be a good thing to yeah, know. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, yeah. it, it's unfortunate that everything is, is about short-termism. Yeah, yeah. Everything is about here and now. So how, how can, you know, there can be very little leadership and, and no wonder people are losing trust. There we go. Our first guest for today uh, is an SNP ambassador for the 5050 Parliament. Fatima Joji is with us on the line. Fatima, good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good afternoon, Salam alaikum. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, we, we would like to know about your organization, 5050 Parliament, specifically about the two programs where you had uh, hashtag ask her to stand and hashtag sign up to stand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 5050 Parliament um, is a cross-party um, campaign that was founded by Francis Scott. Um, and it's there to achieve, to promote gender equality in Parliament because we believe that representation shapes policy and women make up almost 50% of the population and our voices are missing. So we try and encourage women to stand. And the reason we have the Ask Her to Stand and Sign Up to Stand platform is that, um, so with Ask Her to Stand, um, statistics and research show us that women need to be asked three times as more um, to stand um, compared to their male counterparts. Um, so we try and encourage people, um, if they don't want to stand themselves, to try and ask a woman, find a woman that you know would make a good um, representative and encourage her to stand. And then once you've asked her to stand, or if um, the person, the woman doesn't need that process, um, you can sign up to stand. And once you do that, you'll be allocated a buddy, you'll, be, you'll also be offered support um, throughout your process of campaigning and engaging with your party. And you'll also be invited to a number of internal sessions that we host to prepare you for your political journey. Mm-hmm. Now, why, why do you do that? Then? Why is it important for women to be part of the political life in a country? Why, why is it that women, when you have to tell them three times more often or you know, the emphasis to, to, to stand, why? Um, because if we look at the history, um, first of all, women didn't really get the right to vote until... Um, the 1920s, close to the mid 1900s, sorry, 20th century, women did not get the right to vote, and even then, it wasn't all women. And in 
line with that as well, um, political participation was an opportunity for women. So it's a field that's been mostly dominated and built for men. And as a result, we've seen that women have been left behind in policies. Um, a lot of policies that have been put forward don't have um, the impact on women, don't have the needs of women um, considered at all, um, which is why we see that uh, w- women tend to struggle the most when it comes to policy implementation. It doesn't reach women, the services and policies that are provided. So you need these voices at the table to be able to point that out and ensure that um, what we need is not overlooked anymore. So Fatima, it's been 100 years since that right of vote was given to women. What are the barriers today for women to participate in politics? Um, there's still a range of barriers. I mean, that even despite um, women being given the right to vote um, 100 years um, ago, we still face the uh, women still face challenges of um, discrimination and misogyny um, in terms of access, accessibility as well because many women do find themselves adhering to traditional roles and find it very difficult to take up um, a job in the field of parliament because as you mentioned it doesn't cater to women. I mean, one of the MPs brought her baby into parliament and faced issues with that, and um, a woman up in Scotland, an, an MSP, had felt she had to resign because um, the travel distance was making it very hard for her and her personal and family life. Um, so you have accessibility, you have discrimination, um, you find that women are held to higher standards when it comes to men in politics as well, and that's from appearance um, to the way we carry ourselves, and we don't get as much, we don't get away with as much. So there is um, some inequality in the field of politics that makes it um, inaccessible. And you're also your... You're, um, intersectionalities like if you're a Muslim if you're from a racial background you face further discrimination So uh, when you campaign for the 50-50 parliament are you suggesting you know affirmative, uh, affirmative action or are you saying that you know 50% should be elected It's more of an even distribution so in the world you have an uneven distribution of men and women around the world and some some countries women outnumber men and vice versa. In this country, um, women make up just over 50% of the population. Um, I think I alluded to nearly 50%, but yeah. it's just over 50% of the population. And um, it's fair to say that public life, that politics should be representative of the population it claims to represent in order for us to have policies that enrich everyone, that take into account the diversity that we have. Um, so we try and make sure what we're looking for is a representative democracy and where women make up over 50 percent that's why we ask for 50 percent so reserved seats essentially is, is is what you're suggesting and um, more of encouragement is not necessarily um well to be honest women do face discrimination so what we're asking for is for those barriers to be moved because if we really did live in a meritocracy 100 percent we'd see more women in politics so it's not a matter of us saying that women are not qualified. It's a matter of saying, let's stop putting these barriers in place that stop very qualified women. And we can easily achieve 50% because for every qualified woman in politics, for every qualified man, there is a qualified woman in politics. It's just the barriers that are in place. Uh, Father, if I can be the, uh, the devil's advocate for a second, you know, the, uh, some people would argue that there are many women who choose not to uh, play a, an active part in uh, in public life. They they choose to uh, to be with their family. They choose to uh, to um, uh, to be with their kids. 
and and not play an active role in the parliament. So how how does then this fifty fifty ratio work? Well, you can say there are many women who are not interested, but you can also say there are many women who are. There's no shortage of talent of women. Sure. There are many women who want to get into politics who find barriers. And it's very possible with the women who are interested in being in politics to achieve that 50% representation. So basically you're looking at Parliament has over 600 um, MPs. It's not hard to find 300 women plus who are interested. It's a small number. Hmm of the population of women we have in this country. And there's no shortage of challenge um, of talent out of the millions of women that we have, hundreds of thousands who are interested in politics, mm. many hundreds who come through the 50-50 parliament programme, who with every one of them being elected would outnumber the MPs that we are allowed to have already. So I think that argument can easily be debunked. Mm. We're not short of talent. Do you think some of it has got to do with the voter apathy we were talking about earlier? The pe- the, just like men, you know, women, some people uh, are just not interested in politics anymore because they, they just uh, uh, they just lost trust. Well, like I said, they, for every person that you find not interested, you always find people that are. Um, so even if you do find people that are disillusioned, that are um, fatigued with voter, um, voter fatigue as well with the amount of elections mm-hmm. that we're having, I mean, you're saying these same questions for women. You can easily put the same questions to men as well. Some men are facing voter fatigue. Some men are tired with politics. Some men have withdrawn from political life. So I think it's not really fair to put that question only to women. And when we do put that <laughs> sure. question only to women, you will find that there are always women who want to stand, including myself. Hmm. Right. So essentially, then, so your argument is that you know you're not talking about reserve st- seats. You're talking about um, giving access, um, giving them enough opportunities, women, so that they can actually rise and they can they can actually represent people in in the parliament. Correct. We're talking about fair representation hmm. and removal of discriminatory barriers. And relative, if we're looking at fair representation, where women make up over fifty percent, we're just asking just for fair representation, which would give us half of those six hundred plus seats. Excellent, Fatima. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you've certainly made us wiser this afternoon. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. <coughs> Peace be with you. Bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. Just to give uh, our listeners uh, a little bit of background information here, let's uh, run quickly through the UK government system because I know that some people may not be fully aware of that. The United Kingdom is a unitary state with devolution that is governed within the framework of a parliamentary democracy under a constitutional monarchy in which the monarch, currently King Charles III, uh, third, second, second, Third. Charles, Charles III. Sorry, yeah. I'm so sorry. Where, where was I? King of the United Kingdom is the head of the state, while the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak, at the moment, is the head of government. Now, the Prime Minister is the leader of His Majesty's government and is ultimately responsible for all the policies and for all the decisions. And he oversees the operation of the civil service as well as the government agencies. He's the one who appoints ministers who are responsible for the actions, the success, and of course, the failures of their departments, of which we are having quite a few these days. Now, Parliament is made up of people we have elected and people who have been appointed. They sit in two separate houses. You know that, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. 
The House of Commons is where all the peoples have elected, uh, we have elected at the general election work as, we've just heard, MPs, members of parliament. So the the cabinet is made up of the senior members of government. So every week during parliament, members of the cabinet, which has secretaries of state from all departments and some other ministers, they meet to discuss the most important issues for the government. And then on the other side, you have the House of Lords. The members of the House of Lords are mostly appointed for life rather than elected. They have often been chosen because of their achievements, because of their experiences, and many of them don't even belong to a political party. Is that is that the reason why you have these two different houses? That one of them don't have have like an objective kind of um, view to things. Uh, yes, you can. Well, I, 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 I think a lot of uh, members of the parliament would probably disagree with that, but mm. uh, because one simply is an elected house and the other is uh, is an elect unelected house. Let's let's now sure. uh, play a recording that um, uh, of an interview that we conducted earlier with Professor Sean Breslin, who is a professor of politics and international studies at University of Warwick. Right, joining us here on the Draft Home Show is Professor uh, Sean Breslin. He's a professor of politics and international studies at the University of Warwick. He's also a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences, the co-editor at the Pacific Review, as well as an associate senior research fellow at the Italian Institute for International Political Studies. Professor Breslin, thank you very much for your time and welcome to the Draft Home Show. Thanks for inviting me on. I want to ask you, first of all, about uh, the book that you've written, China Risen, Chinese Global Power. What was the idea behind this book? Uh, and also for the benefit of our listeners, what is it that you talk about in this book? So I first went to China in 1984, and I realized last year that that's closer in time to the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949 than it is to today. It was a bit of a shock when I realized that. And at that time, nobody was talking about China as a global power at all. Questions were really about um, poverty and whether it could develop and indeed whether the communist political system could survive. And in 1989, it almost didn't survive. And I was there in China then at that point too. So to see this incredible transformation over the years that I've been going to China, right, I wanted to dig deep into to what it was that might have been the source of this rise and also the source of... Chinese global power, because we, we talk about global power, but what does it, what does it really mean? And if we're focusing on the ability to make others do things that they wouldn't otherwise do, what I wanted to do is just sort of dig down into different dimensions. So rather than just treat um, China as this big whole thing, to look at the economy and then break that down into trade, investment, aid, markets production and see how each of these different parts of the economy might lead to influence authority power over others and to do the same in terms of um, developing different institutions like the asian infrastructure investment bank or even uh, some of the ways that people think like challenging definitions of human rights for example in the in the united nations so that was the the overarching objective of the book and i also felt that it was a bit odd to keep talking about China as a rising power. <laughs> it seemed to me that that was something for the past, and we should probably accept that it was already risen. Professor Rosen, coming to today, so just on, on that topic, on China, why do you think that we have, what's the relationship with China that we have today? I mean, we you have the human rights abuses on one side, we also have 
the economic side on, on the other side. And it's correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't isn't China kind of an enemy to to the West at the moment? Although we have President Biden going there, meeting with President Xi right now, uh, just very recently. But overall, that's my perception. Correct me if I'm wrong here. But if you listen to the media, if you listen to the news, we're 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 not friends, are we? No, and it's um, it's become more serious over well, actually, in Europe over quite a short period of time. I mean, if you go back to 2016, when Cameron was still Prime Minister and George Osborne was the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK, this was a period of the golden age of UK-China relations when the government was desperate to attract Chinese investment into the UK and things have have changed rather quickly, partly because of the change of personnel at the top of the UK government, but partly also because the way things have changed in China as well. There's been lots of focus on, on Xinjiang, for example, um, Hong Kong and the national security law that was introduced there. A lot of people were very unhappy um, with that. And the way in which China's economic influence has increased over parts of the world that seem to be getting closer and closer to European backyards has also changed the way that people are, are thinking. And we also have to look at relations with other countries. China's bad relations with Australia and with the US, of course, they have an impact on on how people in Europe and the UK are thinking too. Um, and I think we, we probably need to be a little bit more nuanced in the, the way that we think. I mean, there are certainly things that a lot of people don't like that are happening in China. Does that make China a, a threat? Maybe not. So certainly not in the way that uh, we think of a threat in terms of guns, bombs and bullets and potential wars and things like that. Is China a threat to national economies? Well, in some extents, perhaps it is. And in other areas, perhaps there are things to be gained in terms of cooperation. But I think the one thing that um, Richie Sunak said recently that actually got him in trouble with some of his own backbenchers was that like China or not, it's really difficult to see how we resolve most of the problems that are facing the world today if we don't have some sort of cooperation with China. Look at the environment as the, as the clearest example of all, but also perhaps what's happening in Ukraine. So I think we're in a situation where this um, mutual distrust has increased. Uh, people, uh, distrust apparently was prepared to call China a national security threat, an acute national security threat. Um, but at the same time, the size and significance of China means that... You know, it's a country that we simply have to deal with and how you navigate this relationship where there are things that you really don't like, things that you see as a threat, but things that you see as really important to build partnerships on. You know, it, it, it's tricky. It's really tricky. Thank you very much for that. Professor Bresden, coming to today, coming to home, what do you see as the advantages and maybe some of the disadvantages of the state of our current political system here uh, in the UK as well as here in the West in general? Yeah, well, I think the disadvantages are probably quite clear to see in terms of the incredible churn in, uh, in leaders and personnel and indeed in policy. We are recording this on uh, on Thursday just before we're about to hear the uh, what is really a budget but not being called a budget, which is likely to overturn what was uh, in the previous budget that wasn't called a budget only a, only a few weeks ago too. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we have to remember that there are options. There are, if you're unhappy with the leadership in a country like the UK, there is something that you can do about it in a couple of years' time. Um, there is the 
possibility of removing the ruling party without overturning the entire political system when of course in a country like china it's all or nothing right because the party is the state so i mean if you dissatisfied with the party there is no alternative to go to so as much as i and perhaps many others are incredibly frustrated about the um almost continual change of prime ministers without us and the electorate having a say about it uh, it, it's probably still better than uh, some of the alternatives out there, right? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. <laughs> now, um, I want to talk about uh, the study of political sciences. What kind of impact, if at all, or you know, if, have you seen any effects of uh, you know the study of political sciences on the real world politics? Is that something that? our leaders or politicians um, really look at? Is that something that they care about? Does that have an impact? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, there has been, um, in the last um, six or seven years or so, I've spent quite a lot of time going down to London to talk to various parts of the government administration. And there's an, a really clear attempt by different parts of the government, the Foreign Office, the Cabinet Office, the Ministry of Defence, to reach out and engage and to have dialogue and discussion with with academics. I've done a couple of those things in the last two weeks or so. And, it, and it's very interesting for us as academics to sort of see the, the way that politicians, uh, not politicians usually, but the um, but the researchers in the administration are thinking, and hopefully they, they gain something from talking to us too. So I think there is more avenue for sort of um, bridging the gap between policy and academic research than in the past. Whether that then has an immediate, direct and demonstrable change on any specific policy, it's very difficult to tell. But there are avenues and opportunities for engagement, and they they have increased, I think. Nasty there. Um, what's your experience in predicting trends in, in, in global politics as a whole? And what's the accuracy of, of those predictions? Yeah, I think we're better in terms of um, predicting the past than we are in terms of predicting the future as, a, as an academic discipline. Uh, but that in itself can be quite useful. I think what we're good at is saying, look, if these, let's say, four or five circumstances coincide, then there is a real possibility that this might happen. What we have to be humble and say is it's very difficult to actually predict what turns the possibility into inevitable action. So, yeah, I would always be a little bit wary about people who have definitive um, uh, understanding of the future, but being able to sort of suggest possible outcomes based on our study of the past is is probably as good as we're going to get. And, you know, that's not too bad if we have a little bit of humility. I think that the thing that we perhaps do best is we give a range of options. If these things happen, this is the most likely consequence. If that and that happen at the same time, then this is the most likely of uh, a range of outcomes. And and try and not be too definitive about it. I mean, Francis Fukuyama confidently stated that we had reached the end of history, uh, and he himself now has uh, suggested that he was let's say a little bit premature in that. I know I said last question, but one more follow-up if you if you allow. Of, of course. Um you, you did say that we're better at predicting or you know speaking about the past than we are at the future. Right now, where do you think what what does the future hold for us? 
think we're in for a period of um, look. People are talking about a new cold war and a new bipolarity, and and there are the, there are sort of elements of that in the way the international system seems to be breaking down in different areas. I mean, if you look at the countries that voted to condemn Russia and those that that either voted against or, or abstained in the United Nations, gives you some idea of a, a form of bipolarity. But I hinted earlier that I think it's a bit more complicated than that, because if you think back to the last period of bipolarity in the Cold War, if you sided with the United States over security, you weren't going to be siding with the Soviet Union when it came to economics, right? And yet today we're in a situation where people are actively questioning whether China should be designated a threat in the UK and other European countries. And yet China is the biggest source of imports into the United Kingdom, one of our biggest trading partners. Um, so you have this sort of um, fragmented global order, I think, where you're going to find some countries coming together on certain issues, but that alliance, if you like, breaking down and fracturing when it comes to other issues. India and China might agree with each other when it comes to their desire for reform of um, global financial institutions, but they very much don't agree with each other when it comes to the best forms of governance and indeed over where the border lies between the two of them. And I think that's the world we're looking at, one of more issue-based alliances with these elements of a a bipolarity sort of perhaps in the background. Professor Sean Breslin, thank you very much for your time, sir. Very, very interesting to talk to you and grateful for you uh, to you for coming on to the Draft Club show today. Uh, not at all. I've enjoyed the conversation. That was uh, Professor Sean Breslin, Professor of Politics and International Studies at the University of Warwick. You know, I want to go back to the conversation we were having earlier about uh, voter apathy and mm. especially apathy among um, younger, uh, the younger generation. And uh, maybe throw a bit of light on, um, uh, on leadership and um, and and uh, and I think that is as a result that is a reflection of the kind of leadership we have, which is a reflection of short termism that we were talking about mm. earlier. You know, everybody's is focused around what what uh, what can be delivered in the next one week, next one month, and how the the next opinion poll um, uh, would make them look in in the next one month, and and therefore nobody is looking at at the long term picture. And I want to to actually. Um, quote an example here, which I think really is an example Mm. for the world, which is the way elections are held within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community Mm. of various office bearers within the community. And and in those elections, you're not allowed to actually talk about yourself at all. You're not allowed to project yourself. Or to stand for election, basically. Yeah, or or even want uh, a, a certain position. It's the other people who choose, who, who, who decide whether you are fit for a role, yeah. they nominate you, and then, you know, the electorate elects you. So I think that that, that is how you, you elect selfless leadership. Yeah, and it, th- that's, that's what it is. If you are uh, asking for it, I mean, if, I think the second caliph of the Amdi Muslim community said it in one of his poems, that uh, do, not, do never ask, do never uh, desire a wish Hmm. For for a post or for a position, because that's not, uh, that, not that's not that's not the spirit. Yeah. Um, if you look at the example of prophets, um, they never desire for the world to be known. 
They never want to want to hide. They want they want to hide exactly from the world. But then it's God who says that based on the fact that you are of that caliber, that you have these abilities and qualities, He chooses them. He chooses them and mm-hmm. says, "Now go to the world and and do your job." And that that's where the different li- difference lies between political ga- worldly gains and and spiritual gains. When we don't have a sense of accountability. Right, so not in this world, right? You, you're not going to be accountable in this world. You'll, you'll get away, you'll wiggle your way out, whatever it is. But if you have a sense of accountability that if not in this life, in the next life, mm-hmm. I will be held account to as to what I've done in this world. Did I discharge my duties and my responsibilities in the way that God Almighty or mm-hmm. the people that God had put me in charge of? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I have not done my duties according to that i will be held accountable so but that is my explanation not just when it comes to politics but or leadership in general how the world is heading and going at the moment it's just no sense of accountability because no sense of or no belief in god mm. faith religion spirituality morality whatever you want to call it that is just going further and further into the background which is giving way and and paving the way basically for everything else apart from from the good. And when it comes to leadership, I mean we've spoken about actually we're going to talk about this after we spoke to our next guest. Um we have with us on the line uh, our next guest for today Faiza Islam. She's a representative of the British Youth Council and member of the Youth Parliament for North Lincolnshire and the Yorkshire and Humber region. We're going to talk to her and ask her a few questions. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to the Draft Time show. Zakla for joining us today. Sister Faiza, I want to ask you about your organization, the British Youth Council, and how it encourages young people to get engaged in politics. Uh, the British Youth Council is an organization that has a range of different opportunities. The first opportunity I got involved in was Youth Parliament, as I'm currently the member of Youth Parliament for North Lincolnshire, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, the experiences people gain from the British Youth Council are acquired to anyone and everyone, no matter where you are, which shows just how it encourages young people to get engaged in politics. And there are so many different campaigns within the British Youth Council that any young person below 25 can get involved in. And um, alongside my work as a member of Youth Parliament, I'm also currently involved in the Vote to 16 Youth Action Group because I think that um, young people aged 16 and 17 deserve the right to vote. Hmm. Can I can I ask you before, Brother Daniel, uh, what exactly do you do? As a member of Youth Parliament? Yes. So um, my local constituency... Basically, right, most um, areas have multiple NYPs, but I'm the only one for North Lincolnshire, and I'm like their voice. So if anyone has a problem, they come to me, they tell me, and I try to get it sorted, and I go to youth council meetings where I get to discuss um, other people's viewpoints and what people want to discuss. I get to go to some council meetings so that I can get my voice out to the older people, mm-hmm. and I get to lead like my own range of campaigns alongside the other youth councillors. Okay. So, Faisal, you, you sound pretty young. What yeah. made you decide to jump into politics and in this world? Um, I think that I've always been interested in getting my voice out there. I've always been a strong leader. Like, my parents 
brought me up to get my voice out there. If I want to be heard, then I get heard. And I think that I've sat back for so many years thinking that I want someone to listen to me. I want someone to hear what I'm saying. And I want someone to hear what people my age are thinking. And there was just no one out there to do that. So when the opportunity came to me to be the member of youth parliament, I was like, this is the perfect role for me. And then when I got it, it was like a sense of relief that not only was I... Not only did I get the role, it was like, I'm finally going to have my voice listened to. So we were talking to another guest earlier on, and she mentioned that there are still a lot of barriers for women to enter um, the world of politics. Did you encounter any any barriers? Um, not really, because I think that I've, I've come from such a supportive background, not just with my family, but the people around me. Like, everyone was so supportive of it because they knew that something like this was perfect for me. So I didn't really have any barriers as such. I mean, there were some hard things, like trying to get votes and stuff, hmm. and, you know, trying to actually get into the role and finding my confidence within myself to speak. But other than that, I've not had any actual barriers. Alhamdulillah. Hmm. So, you know, the role's been perfect for me. It's been going so smoothly for me. Good to hear. So, what then, to your mind, are the are the inhibiting factors for young people to get involved in, in politics? Well, I believe that it's the general stereotypes around getting into politics, and most young people don't think that politics affect them. But it isn't true because politics affects absolutely everyone, no matter where you are, no matter where you live. And especially as us young people are the next generation, our voice is one of the most important, which is why I strive so strongly for as many young people to get into politics as they can. I mean, many of my constituents bring issues to me that I didn't think were political, such as stuff like the minimum wage. Hmm. But after like thinking about it and going through it and realizing that it is political, people are becoming more aware of like politics and the the world around them that politics controls. Have you been able to make a difference? I believe I have because I think. So we went to the annual conference, which was held in the University of Hull, and my speech was on um, standardising the minimum wage. And there was a report that came out yesterday, which I can't remember the figures, but the minimum wage for 16-year-olds has gone up. Hmm. The minimum wage for 17 More than 10 pounds, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's going up. So, if you know, that wasn't just me. That wasn't just my sure. voice. But sure. it, it's the voice of young people that I trying to strive for better lives for us and especially as I went to parliament and I spoke about education and health if I if I didn't have the power in my voice and if all the other NYPs didn't have powers in their voices and we wouldn't be making a change and I do truly believe that us making these speeches and us going to the higher people and us getting our voice out there is making the change that we want to see what's the difference between the the next generation when it comes to to their outlook uh to to politics and their ideas of what how we should govern and how we should rule what what are some of the things that we should do compared to compared to our our current political elite where do you think the difference lies uh between the two um, I think the difference lies between the fact that we have a fresher mindset. So the things that we want to see are more so that it's not just... I don't really know how to explain it properly, but we sort of... Are the they disconnected the from, from reality, maybe? Is that is that is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Now, lastly there, Faiza, I want to ask you about the benefits of youth participation in local communities because that's that's where it starts, isn't it? I mean, you can't just jump into yeah. parliament. You have to start somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a large range of benefits. And the biggest benefit, which I have been speaking about through this interview, is just accentuating our voice hmm. from the adult counterparts who aren't used to listening to a younger voice and a younger opinion. And I think another benefit is the range of opinions, because sometimes uh, higher up people are just so used to listening to the same opinions, the same things wanting to happen. And I think a fresh, a new, a young voice is what we need and is what we need to hear. And through my experience, I believe that my voice as the mouthpiece for all the constituents in my area is, is genuinely what we need. And it's, it's, we just, we need a new voice. We need yeah. a fresh voice, but we don't, it wouldn't, it's not to replace the old voice. It's to work together and work as a new union. Wonderful. Faiza, thank you very much for joining us today. Zakala, for, for, for your time. Uh, we wish you all the best Thanks for the future. Me. Maybe we'll see you in the parliament one day. God knows. Inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. <clears throat> is the number for you to call. With that, we're going to go to our next guest uh, for today. We are joined by the spokesperson of Christian Climate Action, Melanie Nazareth. She's with us on the line. I'm going to ask her a few questions. Melanie, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. Great to have you on. Um, Tell us about Christian Climate Action. What are your goals in achieving a cleaner and greener climate? And more importantly, maybe, how are you you achieving that? Uh, So we're a a, a group of Christians um, who think that our faith uh, leads us to... um, need to do something about the crisis that the uh, is facing hmm. both the earth and all, all the creatures that God created but also the people who are suffering and so we support each other to take actions on all sorts of things related to the climate crisis we take direct action that is protesting but we also do a lot of work in engaging and mobilizing people hmm. and I think uh, at bottom, we believe that it's really important that people take individual actions like recycling or maybe eating more of a plant-based diet, the sorts of things that will reduce uh, emission levels and help to protect the planet. But it is actually government and corporate interests that hold the key. We can never do enough on an individual basis to solve the crisis just as ordinary people. Um, so when you, the reason why I'm asking you and the reason why I ask that question that how do you achieve this goal is because um, right now, I believe if you uh, go through the news, if you have been in uh, in, in this country for, for a couple of years, people generally, they are aware of the issue. The problem that people have is about how this how this issue is raised, how attention, how the people's attention is 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 drawn towards that issue. Because I'm thinking of Stop Oil, I'm thinking of Extension Rebellion, I'm thinking of all of these organizations that have really, you know, what extreme ways of of pointing out that there is a problem with our um, uh, with our climate and and that we have to do something about that. How how exactly do you raise that issue? 
So we work quite a lot with Extinction Rebellion. Uh, we even have some people within Christian Climate whose individuals go out and work with Just Stop mm-hmm. Oil and do those things. I think we have to understand that there's a level of desperation about things like the climate crisis. It's so acute and we have so little time and it looks so much like the government is taking no real action Mm -hmm. on this. Uh, And we only have to see what's happening, like the floods in Pakistan, the starvation in um, the Horn of Africa. Those sorts of things can't go on. And so you can see why people are driven to those really desperate measures to try and get something done about it and to get some publicity about it because it is actually very very difficult to get your voice heard on issues that don't that the government doesn't want to listen to i i melanie the reason why i'm asking you this i'm I'm sure our listeners have heard these heated debates and discussions and interviews on social media as well but i mean it's the way you get the message across i'm just saying that Stop oil, for example, is is I have been personally affected by that. I was stuck on the M25 for God knows three and a half hours. My niece was waiting at the airport for me. So, if you, I, I, I get the urgency of 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 this issue, and I have absolutely no problem with that. As people of faith, I absolutely agree with you that it is our responsibility to take care of God's creation. This is a trust upon our shoulders. But isn't how much of that do you actually think is getting across in a positive way? And then now, as Christian Climate Action, have have people asked you or you know come across and said that as as people of faith, maybe maybe there's a different approach. So yes, and we have this dialogue both with people outside our movement and within our movement all the time. And I think we need all of everything that everyone Hmm. can bring to this. So you get those people who do those extreme actions, who keep that agenda in the news, uh, and often it makes people very angry. And I agree with you that it's not uh, the only thing that we should be doing. We have to be doing lots of other... And I'm sure you are doing, but that's what people are seeing, isn't it? I know. And that's a real indication that the sorts of other things that we do, we go out and do lots of talks, we attend marches, we uh, organize smaller demonstrations outside companies that are extracting fossil fuels, but nobody really hears about all that mm. huge amount of work, which in fact is vastly more than the blocking roads that's, that's done. And that gives you an indication of how difficult it is to get other methods out into the public arena for sure. them to have any real impact. It's a great shame that that's the way it is. Because actually, I think we should be constructively going out and building yeah. communities. And that that's part of what we do. We go out there and we try and build these communities of compassion. That right. <clears throat> sure. Melody, would you go so far as to say that there is a disconnect between what people are feeling on the ground and what's being discussed in the parliament? Uh, yes, I think there is a huge disconnect, certainly at governmental levels, because I think... One of the problems with our politics is that it's very short term. It looks to being elected every um, few years. They start another election cycle because they're looking forward to the election. So they can't take meaningful action to address problems because they're worried that it means they won't get back into power next time. And therefore, all these sorts of concerns that that are about justice and humanity and long-term future and future generations... They just get pushed to one side for the 
for the sound bite that the politician can can use. And I think we've got to learn how to tackle that as a society. So, uh, you know, I fully agree with you you there uh, on, on the disconnect. But short of taking law in our own hands, is there anything else we can do to... Or, or, or do you think the system is failing? I think the system is failing, but I don't think we should give up hope. And I do think there's a lot that we can do. And there are two things I think we can really do, or, or maybe even three. The first is that all of us have, a, have, a, have, a, have some power. And we have that power because we can talk and use our voices in our families, in our places of worship, in our, in our, in our mosques and in our churches in the places where we work. And the more we talk to people about this, the more we talk about it openly, the more these issues of of, um, justice, about God's justice will come to the fore. We shouldn't be shy as people of faith and owning to our faith and saying, this is the right thing to do. This is the moral and human thing to do. So that's the first part. The second is that we should also get involved in community action. So people should be standing for local election and because if the good people don't stand up and do this you only end up with the people who are interested in themselves and in promoting themselves and in being very grand and powerful we need good people in those positions and i think the third thing you can do is actually get involved in groups that are campaigning about this and often groups that are willing to take some direct action not necessarily blocking roads but putting your voice out there and doing a letter campaign, writing to your MP, or even going and protesting, joining the big protests that are, are being put on. Mm. Those are all things that we have in our power and will change society because if governments know that people feel really strongly about it, they will worry about not being elected next time. Do you worry about the the kind of leadership we have not not just in this country, but around the world, um, who can tackle the very challenging issues we're talking about? Yes, I, I worry a great deal because I think what they do is they uh, try and appeal to people's worst instincts in some ways. Instead of saying, we're all human beings, we should all be living together globally in a, in a, in a family and we re- need to recognize our need to look after our most vulnerable, our poorest, um, and and take care of everyone on earth. They just aim for this individual kind of let's all do the best for ourselves hmm. and this sort of sense of greed. And I think that's such a bad thing. Melanie, lastly, from my side, where does play, uh, where does faith play into this? What role does faith play in all of the things that you do? So, from a personal perspective i feel that god really calls me to these things this is something that god has spoken into my heart and said this is an important thing and this is where i want you to be and we're all called to to do different things in god's service but i think that faith as institutions if if all the people of faith across the world raised their voices up the millions of people who believe in god um, we could really make a difference. And, and our faith institutions are wealthy. If they put their money into solving some of these problems, investing ethically or saying um, this is the way we're going to help people, mm. I think we could make a difference, such a difference. Okay. 
And is that where we should start? With with climate, with 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 the world, because um, the reason I'm I'm asking is that from, from my point of view, I would have a different approach. But I would I would like to know what, how you how you see that. I've come to believe that we should start with the climate. I, I think because it's the most urgent thing, but also it will make all the other problems very much worse. Yeah. As we begin to get these stresses. All the other things we worry about will get worse. So I think if we don't start addressing that, but also I think it's the, a really direct cause of human suffering at the moment. And climate crisis makes disease worse. It makes poverty worse. It makes everything uh, that affects the human condition much worse. So I think Wonderful. we should start there. Melanie Nazareth, spokesperson of Christian Climate Action. Thank you very much for your time, Melanie. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You know the point that she was making about uh, about faith uh, yeah. and faith playing an important role. You know, I disagree with, but uh, uh, well, I you know, if you look at it from the from the point of view that um, you know, I'm making a slightly different argument here. So, so my argument is that we should have leadership which is guided by faith. Yes, and that's and exactly, that's what the world needs. That's that's that was my point. Mm. You, if you have, look, this is not going to change overnight. Mm. I mean, that, let, let's face the reality. This is, this is what it is. If you think about real term and realistically, when you start with this issue, you're neglecting the thousands of other issues that faith is supposed to solve. Yeah. Right? Faith is God, God in, in Christian faith and Hindu, Buddhist, Islamic faith, doesn't matter what, which faith or which religion you talk about. The underlying message is worship of God, service to mankind, being good to each other. If you have the lack of basic education in a person and you focus on something which, in my opinion, is important, no doubt about that, but it's not what faith came to do. If you have everything else in place, everything else will fall into place. So when, for example, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, came, he didn't start with animal rights. Hmm. He didn't start with, oh, take care of, of, your, of your environment. No. Yeah, he I, made you into a moral human being that you automatically reali- realize yourself Correct. that is my job to take care of animals no, but and, I, and whatnot. I, from what I heard, I think uh, the point that Melanie was, was trying to make was that if we are in all our actions mm. guided by faith, yes, yes, then, you know, then we wouldn't have a climate issue yeah. or we'd be able to solve the climate issue. We uh, wouldn't have animals, uh, you know, uh, uh, being, uh, you know, mishandled or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess from from that perspective, uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it, all your actions, and and that's what our belief is, isn't yeah, it? That yeah. all, every action that we 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 make, everything that we do, everything that we think, uh, should be guided by faith. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And again, it shouldn't be two separate things. That that's what we try to to do here on on this show as well, and in Voice of Islam in general. That it shouldn't be two separate entities. Hmm. Your faith is part of your life. You don't have to display it at certain points. It's just every action that you do, every decision that you take, hmm. should be guided, as you said, by faith, and you should automatically come to these conclusions. One more thing I learned from from Melanie is that people of faith are very wealthy. I didn't know that you were a wealthy <laughs> what? person. Well, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Where I, are those? I, I've learned something new today. So yeah, so yeah, I'm I'm coming uh, to yours for dinner tonight. <laughs>
<laughs> Make sure you pack that uh, backpack for the right. protest okay. afterwards. Bring my own stuff. <laughs> Bring your own stuff. <laughs> All right, we're going to conclude today's show, and uh, there's a few things that we just want to recap. I think uh, at the end, um, there's one qu- quote of His Holiness uh, that he delivered at the military headquarters in Germany and Koblenz on the 30th of May in 2012. But uh, very quickly, Brother Daniel, anything on from your side? No, I think uh, just the fact that uh, uh, I think just reiterate the point that yeah. uh, you know I think all our actions need to be guided by faith. Number yeah. one, and and number two, if our leadership hmm. is then guided by by faith and is 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 then guided by uh, by doing the right thing yeah. at the right time and also by long term thinking and not just short termism, I think we'll be able to solve a lot of problems. The leaders and their governments should strive to create laws that foster an environment and spirit of truth and justice rather than making laws that are means of causing distress and frustration to the people. Injustices and cruelties should be eliminated and instead we should strive for true justice. The best way to do this that the world should come to recognize its creator. Every form of loyalty should be linked to loyalty with God. If this occurs, then we will come to witness with our own eyes that the very highest standards of loyalty will be established by the people of all countries and new avenues leading us to peace and security will open throughout the world, which will include the climate change issue to be tackled as well. From all of us here at the Voice of Islam Studios, we would like to say thank you for listening in. Don't forget to Tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, life is going to be with you at 10 a.m. And then on Sunday, the weekend world team will be joining you also at 10 a.m. We're going to be back with you uh, on Monday, inshallah, from all of us here at The Voice of Islam. Jazakallah for tuning in and jazakallah to today's researchers and producers, Aiza Mahmood and Durasameen Mirza. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.